So I think that's been helpful being in the industry for so long, especially being so young. You know, I'm only 29, and but still having such like a storied history in in the real estate market. Um, and then also, I think it's just um, the knowledge. I'm able to serve such a wider range of clientele because of my experience, because of my knowledge. I've owned Airbnbs, I've done flips, I've done rental properties. You name it, I've done it. Commercial real estate. Um, everything. And so for me to then talk to a client, I feel like I can really advise them effectively in a way that, you know, I'm confident giving them advice. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, today we have Rachel Grun on. This is a high fashion model that's actually coming to us from London, uh, who is now building a real estate empire to offset the fact that being a model sometimes doesn't last for one's entire life. Uh, she has had some tremendous results, is only in year two, but did $6.5 million in commission or in volume in the first quarter. So Rachel, thank you for coming on. We appreciate it. Take us in as always, what's the craziest real estate transaction or experience you've faced so far? Well, firstly, I just want to note that uh, slip you made, and I'm going to speak it into existence for next year, 6.5 million in commission. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That'll be Q1 of next year, baby. Cool. Um, yeah, so my craziest uh, story in real estate is, I mean, yeah, this, this was wild, and I think it was definitely like some good takeaways as far as like what the, the things you should do as an agent before listing a property. So I was the buyer's agent in this transaction, and our deal almost blew up. We actually got it to the closing table by the grace of God, but um, so my clients were also selling their property, and it was outside of the DFW area, so I was not the selling agent, but the listing agent did not open title on their property before putting it on the market and turns out their next door neighbors of the home they were selling had taken out a lien on the, on their property Whoa. so they had a two hundred thousand dollar secondary mortgage that was taken out and the title office and they didn't do it nefariously but the title office that processed that um that second mortgage messed up on like the lot and block and accidentally put it on my client's home they were selling so that was like there's two or three weeks of like getting affidavits signed by those buyers and, or I'm sorry, by the uh, neighbors. And obviously they didn't want to sign the affidavits because they're like, what? We're not on the hook for that secondary mortgage. Yeah, go for it. And it's like, buddy, that's not how that works. So it was insane trying to get to that, that to the closing table. I've never heard of anyone getting a mortgage taken out in the wrong house before in my life, but it happens apparently. So um, moral of the story is, guys, open title on your listings before putting them on the market. <laughs> totally. Just to make sure. <laughs> I'd like to go into the solving of that problem. Who was responsible for like getting all the parties to the table? Because I mean, that's a real skill is yeah. getting someone who now thinks maybe I can get away with not having to pay this mortgage. Was it you or what was the process like? Yeah. So unfortunately they to add insult to injury, the company they used for the secondary mortgage, like the lender was a like online lender, I won't name names, but they didn't really have, they had like a general customer service number and not necessarily like a point 
support person or like a processor that you could just call up, like nothing like that. And it was like Monday through Friday, like 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. business hours. So it was impossible to get anyone on the phone to talk about this. I would say definitely like the most of the responsibility or the onus was on the listing agent on theirs, like that were selling the property for my clients in Montgomery because um, she was the one trying to like organize all the parties that the, they were trying to track down the title office that closed on the secondary mortgage because they couldn't find that information out because the lender has their own in-house closing team title office. It was just a mess. And so we had to get an affidavit signed from the neighbors and then they had to go hand deliver it to the county um, office or wherever they record deeds in Montgomery. I'm not sure, but they had to get it taken over there. And then we had to get confirmation from the county that they had received it and processed that change before we could do anything or even schedule a close date or anything. And of course, like it's, it's like this domino effect, right? Because everyone that's selling is generally buying. So because uh, that we were under contract on a purchase in Dallas and the people that were selling the home to us were also buying another home. So they were contingent. And it's just like, this was this total domino effect where this random transaction in Montgomery, Texas was affecting like six or seven people in Dallas. It was super stressful, but we got it closed. We did. I don't know how, but it happened. <laughs> and you probably had to do a lot of, you know, PR work, you know, like almost maybe play the role of the therapist there with, with the sellers that are, you're buying that home. So like, yes. how did you keep them on the hook? Oh gosh. It was a lot of talking down from ledges. It was a lot of guys, you did nothing wrong. This is a clerical thing. We're going to get it fixed. There's, there's a lot of, I, I feel like um, buyers and understandably, like I've been a home buyer before. I know how it is. Like it's really easy to get emotional really fast and start to do the what if, right? Cycle all the way down to the worst case scenario. They're like, what if they skip town? What if they just stop calling us? What if, and I'm like, well, legally, like, like they made a legal error that has to be fixed. We can escalate this to the legal system if we need to. I really hope it doesn't get to that point. Maybe a letter from an attorney will help put a fire under their butt, but I really hope it doesn't get to that point, but legally they're in the wrong. And so it's a lot of like, just going back to the facts, going back to guys, <clears throat> let's not spiral. Let's not start thinking doom and gloom. Like the facts are you guys did everything you're supposed to do. And right now it's just a lot of crossing T's and dotting I's that needs to happen. And that's on us. That's our responsibility. So I want you to not worry and just trust the professionals to do the job correctly this time, essentially. Yeah. And you had to go to the listing agent of the property they're buying and get extensions and so on and so forth. Oh yeah. I, yeah. We think we signed like five or six closing date extensions because initially I said, well, let's just extend the closing date three weeks. And the seller's that we were purchasing from, we're like, no, 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 no. We are on the hook for another property. We can't just extend it into the future like that. So we were doing like five day extensions, like six or seven times. It was wild and horrible, but oh my gosh. Yeah. That, that took some years off my life for sure. So I want to take us back to kind of the beginning of the story. You were homeschooled and obviously that was, that's important to you. You put it in the notes here. So tell us about your journey. Oh gosh. Well, you know, I was homeschooled before it was cool. <laughs> I think like in this like post COVID world, a lot of people like homeschooling is definitely like on the up. I was homeschooled back when it was like very granola and, you know, hard to make friends. Um, but it's, it's been at the time I hated it, I will say. Um, but looking back, I think it was so amazing because I got to get an education 
outside of just like the standard status quo cookie cutter type of educa education system that we have here in America. So I was doing like a lot of hands-on. Of course, I, you know, I did my English and maths and sciences and all that kind of good stuff. But um, my parents are professional or were, they're retired now, but they were like professional real estate investors. They never had their license or anything like that, but they flipped properties, had rental properties, had um, <clears throat> like all sorts of different creative sort of real estate investments going on, even in the commercial space. So growing up, I was spending a lot of my time at my parents' flips at their rental properties. I was negotiating leases at the age of like 12. I was calling up sellers that had distressed or not sellers, but homeowners trying to convince them to sell that had distressed properties at like from the age of eight, seriously. And I was up there scraping tile, putting up backsplash. And I think like for me to have that kind of exposure at such a young age to an industry that otherwise I would have had no idea about was so critical in not only my like foundational understanding of, of the industry, but also like the fortitude, right? Because this was like 2008 we're talking about and my parents had rental properties. They had stuff going on. I watched them. I was there with them working on these properties during that great recession. And so going through that, um, in the real estate industry, um, in such like formative years of my life, I think really like set up the stage for me to pursue it as a career now that I'm older, even though I've only been licensed for a little over two years now, I have such a foundation of understanding of the real estate space. And I was a real estate investor for nine years before I became an agent. So, um, as far as transaction count, I've had plenty even before I was licensed. And I think that has been fundamental in my success. Oh, Totally. So take me back to the eight to 12 year old, Rachel, like you said, you hated homeschooling, but like, was that also your attitude of course, towards the real estate investing? No. Oh my gosh. I loved it. Um, I, I think I loved it because it was something new and exciting and fun. This was before Netflix, before, you know, uh, Joanna Gaines and all that. And it was, again, before flipping was cool. I don't even think it was called flipping in, in 2005. <clears throat> I have no idea what it was called, but, you know, we we're rehabbing homes. And I thought it was super cool because we were taking this, like, gross, my, my family loved hoarder houses. That was, like, their niche. And those are scary because <clears throat> generally there's animals living in them and just disgusting and smells and everything. And it was so awesome to go in there and like literally watch the transformation happen over like three months to be like this gorgeous space. I just absolutely loved it. I would help them design and plan and all this stuff. And that was so fun for me from a young age. And it like all my friends, like even though I didn't like the homeschooling part because I, I was lacking the social aspect, my friends were in school from Monday through Friday from like, you know, nine to three sitting bored to death in their classes. And I was like out with my family getting McDonald's for lunch and like painting, listening to music. Like it was really fun. Wow. And so at what point, I mean, so you're loving, which I'm trying to like understand this, you're, you're loving the real estate investing, but you're hating homeschooling. Can you tell me like, <laughs> how'd you hate homeschooling? Yes. Well, cause my friends like got to go to homecoming school mm -hmm. dances, like Friday night football games. Like I didn't do any of that. Right. I was in church. And so like, I had a friend group through that, but, um, but I felt like I was missing out on like an integral part of like the all American youth experience. Right. Looking back, of course, I don't feel that way. I'm like, oh, like high school looked like it sucked and stuff, you know, but, um, 
and I did, I did go to public high school. Uh, well, the last couple of years of public high school, but up until then I was homeschooled. My parents ended up getting a divorce. And so we had to unfortunately mm. go to public school, which was fine. And that was like a whole different culture shock. But those earlier formative years, yeah, I felt like I was missing out. I mean, being a teenager is hard and to feel like you're being ostracized or not included. You know, all my church friends were like talking about like their high school boy crushes and like or middle school boy crushes and all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I have four siblings and that's like pretty much the only people I see during the day. (laughs) So definitely felt like I was missing out um, at the time. Looking back on it now, and you're kind of giving me a little bit of context already, like how would you view it now, like with the knowledge you have, if you had to go back and be, you know, 12 again? Oh gosh. At the time I would have asked my parents, um, to give me a loan and it's okay if I had to pay interest uh, on the loan, but I would have asked them to give me a loan so I could start doing my own properties from the age of like eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, because I had a lot of knowledge at that time to get the deals done. And of course they would probably have to sign on the documents for me because I was underage, but to get a loan to get started and do most of the, like the heavy lifting, I would have loved to do that so that I would have had a bigger nest egg to start out with once I was ready to take on my own properties at 18. So let's say, let's say we we role play for a second, right? Like, let's say I play your your dad's role. Like you're pitching me for a loan. Like, how would you, how would you (laughs) want that structure? What would you do with the money if we play like a shark tank, right? Okay. So dad, um, let's see, I really want to do this flip property. Okay. And I'm going to get a hard money loan on it. And the purchase price is, um, let's do it in today's money. Cause I don't know what it was 15 years ago, but okay. So the purchase price is, um, $150,000. Um, the hard money lender is going to give me 90% on that. So I'm only going to have to put down $15,000, but I will need 40,000 for the rehab. So right now we're looking at $55,000 loan. Um, now I am taking a loan from the hard money lender and I would love for you to sign on that loan for me because I'm not obviously able to at this age. Um, but I will pay all the fees associated with that through the loan that I'm getting from you. So 55,000, let's say holding costs are another $10,000 because hard money is expensive, but then say on top of that, closing costs are another 20 K. So right now we're looking at $785,000 loan. <clears throat> so I'll, if you give me that $85,000 loan, I will pay you, um, let's see, I will pay you 6% interest on the loan annualized. Um, and I will pay it out of my proceeds at closing. So now what I do is I take that property and also I have to have a business plan because you're a lender. The hard money lender is going to want to see ARVs, right? They're going to want to see comps to support the selling price. So they know it's a good investment. I have comps that'll support this $150,000 home to sell at three seventy-five. dollars Okay. So I'm going to net however many number of dollars you're going to get back all of your money. Plus if it takes me six months, 3% on top of that uh, for the loan. And that's okay. kind of, how I would present it. Wow. So you'd pay 3% origination, 6% interest, paid at closing. What would the, uh, what would my collateral look like? Ooh, good question for a 10 year old that has lots of assets. <laughs> right. Like, or what's what basically like if the deal goes South, right. Yeah. Do I recover? Right. So if the deal, this is, see, this is the issue when you have an eight-year-old, there's not a lot 
right? it's a lot of like uh help from the parent right because totally you have to 100%. Check, double check their work so um yeah i don't know i think at that point it would just be like okay buddy you can help out, you know, you can do a lot yeah. of the heavy lifting. You can, obviously you can't drive to the hardware store. You can't, yep. you know, go to closing by yourself. But, um, I think it's going to take a little bit of know-how from the parent. I would not recommend that if you are not familiar with real estate investing, that you just give your eight or 10 year old $85,000. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm asking this this question so selfishly too. I have a 13 year old daughter, and she's been okay. exposed to this arena. She's watched us flip houses, and okay, cool. I don't know, I don't know to what degree her interest is if her interest is light or or heavy in this regard. But I kind of wanted you to pitch it so I could show it to her later and say, hey, like I'll I'll allow you to come pitch me if you want, um, if you wanted to take one on. So thank you for doing that. Um, I think like in that regard, um, say it did go south, right, and maybe you lost some money. Um, I would say what I would say to my parents would be, okay, I know that one didn't work out. How about this? We do another one. I do all the work, but you keep all the profit as like sort of a concession, right? Yeah. So that's a way for maybe them to recoup some of what they lost is they get all the profit. But again, I'll do a lot of the heavy lifting and a lot of the work. Yeah. And I would say that most parents who have real estate investing experience that have kids that are interested, like we lose 20 or $30,000, like you know, for our kid to learn the lesson at 10 instead yeah. of 35, it's well worth it. Exactly. Yeah. hundred percent. If you have the ability and the wherewithal and the know-how, I think it's a no brainer. I mean, I have a one-year-old, I'm going to wait a few more years, but I'd love to do something <laughs> like that with her. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. So, so tell us like, how has being involved so early impacted you? I think definitely as far as like the economic cycles go, like I've been in the real estate industry for a long time and I'm not going to sit here naively and say like I was impacted by the recession as an eight-year-old. Obviously, I didn't have like bank accounts like that and stuff. So, and I didn't own real estate outright on my own, but you really like, my parents didn't shield any of that from us, right? And mm. they were like, this is what's happening with the properties we have. This is what we're going to have to sell in order to mitigate this loss. This is how we're going to change plans. This is how we're going to blah, blah, blah. They talked to us like adults, which I so appreciated, you know, because I really felt like I was getting a huge education. So I think that's been helpful being in the industry for so long, especially being so young, you know, I'm only 29 and, but still having such like a storied history in the, in the real estate market. Um, and then also I think it's just, um, the knowledge I'm able to serve such a wider range of clientele because of my experience, because of my knowledge, I've owned Airbnbs, I've done flips, I've done rental properties, you name it, I've done it, commercial real estate, um, everything. And so for me to then talk to a client, I feel like I can really advise them, effectively in a way that, you know, I'm confident giving them advice because I've been through it. I've done it. I've seen it all done it all. Wow. Um, and so you essentially can operate one without fear, like that most people yeah. are crippled by fear and you get to bypass that. And then of course you get to, to pass it on your clients. So can you talk to me a little bit about like, how do you separate like the financial world, which is obviously like going to help you be secure for life and your high fashion modeling? Like was it just like you went full into modeling and then you started moving into real estate? How do you balance those two, two things? Yeah, good question. So um, I started modeling when I was 15 and uh, it took me, I was just going to do it in high school. But then after high school, I got a contract to go to Paris for a year and I was like, oh, of course, I'll go to Paris for a year. I'll come back and I'll go to college. 
I did. I came back and I spent like a semester in college, hated it. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to drop out. So I actually dropped out of college. And at the time, my parents were like, what are you doing? No, <laughs> I never went back. I've, I'm, a college, I'm a college dropout, uh, <laughs> but never went back doing fine. And at that point, I ended up going to Paris and then to L.A. for a couple of years and then to London. And then I spent five years in New York City, which is where I met my husband, um, and then back to Los Angeles in 2019. So I spent 10 years traveling the world for high fashion modeling, runway, the whole gamut, did all of it. And it was amazing. And so at the age of like, you know, 18, 19, I had a lot of disposable income for a teenager. And because of my exposure to the real estate industry, I knew exactly what to do with that disposable income. Whereas my peers in the modeling space were blowing it, buying crazy things, going on crazy vacations. I mean, what do you do when you're making six figures at 18 or 19? You go crazy, especially if you don't have like a sound, you know, family, like teaching you financial advice and all that kind of stuff. So I started investing it immediately. And so I was building like quite the nest egg in real estate back in Dallas, even, and I was doing all of my, everything in Dallas, except for one Airbnb I did in Indianapolis. But so I'm building a real estate portfolio while traveling the world. And then COVID happens and my modeling work dries up overnight and I'm living in LA and it's like, you can't work from home as a model. And there was nothing happening on set, nothing. So my husband and I spent a few months in LA, you know, living off savings, living off some income from my investments. And then we were like, you know what? We really want to start a family. We don't know when the world's going to go back to normal. If it ever is, I can't rely on this income any longer. We, something, something's got to change. So we said, let's move back to Dallas and figure it out because I'm from Dallas. He's from New York. So we go back to Dallas in 2020. And um, I was like, well, there's modeling in Dallas, right? Neiman Marcus is based there. JC Penney is based there. So there's some work. It's not as consistent as like LA or New York, but there's some work. So, you know, what? I'll model a little bit in Dallas. The work was super slow, still COVID. And eventually it got to the point where I was like, you know what? What do I know? What do I love? It's real estate. And so I said, why don't I get licensed to just start brokering my own deals and then see where, see what happens? Well, um, I got licensed, ended up posting about it on Facebook. And of course, you know, I being from Dallas, growing up in Dallas, my whole sphere of influence is there. And it was pretty much immediately that people started, you know, reaching out to me and saying, Hey, I saw you got licensed. Like, would you be interested in like, help me find a house, looking at my help buying a rental property, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it just kind of snowballed and got to the point where I was like, you know what, I really want to do this full time. And I will still pick up the phone when they call for modeling. Cause generally it's like one day here and there, you know, um, I did get a contract to come out to London for a month which is where I am right now to model. And it's been amazing. And this is the beauty of having a business like real estate because I can truly do it from anywhere. So that's kind of been my like transition into real estate full time. And honestly, like the past two years have been incredible. What sort of emotional or positive benefits do you get from modeling? Like, what do you love about it? I think... I mean, I love it because I've been able to experience and see things that I don't think people are able to in a lifetime. And I'm so, so grateful for that. And I do not take it for granted. I've traveled to countless countries for work. Um, I've, you know, met some amazing people. I've like walked some incredible runways. I've seen amazing things, been to incredible events. Like you wouldn't believe it. That would be a whole podcast in itself. So that's been great as far as the experiences it's lended me. Um, but then also from like a character building perspective, it's given me serious grit and thick skin. 
you have to have thick skin whenever someone's literally every day commenting on something they don't like about your body. And it's, it took me a while. It wasn't overnight, but it got to the point where I was like, you know what? That's about them. It's not about me. And I can't take on all the negative feedback as in like internalize it. Right. Because I'll spiral. And so I think as, a, as far as it is applicable to real estate, I've really been able to get, um, to develop like a serious grit when it comes to negotiations, when it comes to, um, you know, just sticking, drawing a line in the sand for my clients, you know, and, and really like getting their back. I won't back down from conflicts. And I think all of that confidence has definitely come from the modeling industry. Which is so cool. And there's a lot of ways to get that, right? I mean, like a lot of cold callers, they build that resilience. You're getting it in the form yeah. of body comments, which might be as arguably as harder, right? Cause it's, it really <laughs> is directed at you. They're saying you, your, you know, face doesn't look like this or however those, yeah. Just kind of an off-the-cuff question, I guess. You know, we, we're in a society right now that is anti-body shaming and so on and so forth. You being in the model industry, seeing the benefits of being tough, right? Seeing the benefits of recognizing that it's their opinion, not your own. How do you feel like we should operate as a society in relationship to trying to either make people tough versus, you know, not uh, saying any negative comments? Not offending. Not offending, yeah. I think... Okay. I believe in honesty if it's delivered tactfully. So I, I don't think it's a, I think, so in LA, there's a saying where people die from encouragement in Los Angeles. And I think it's so true. It's so fake. And it's like, I think there's like a toxic positivity where you are encouraging someone to the point of their own self-destruction, right? Like enabling bad behaviors. So I, I don't think people should be afraid of offending someone if they're delivering truth and their intent is not malicious. So it's like, I don't like the decisions that you're making because I see the path it's taking you down. You shouldn't be afraid of delivering that truth to somebody as long as you do it in a loving way, as long as it's followed with, but I love you and I want to help you. And I think there's a distinct difference between that and just like a, like, dude, like you're off the rails. You are such an embarrassment to me. You're drunk all the time. I mean, whatever it is that you're wanting to confront in somebody, I think is as long as it's done with love, there is no fault in being truthful. Yeah. I love how you shared the benefits you got of being tough, of learning. And it's not like you, you're you're actually, I think, doing it in the right way in the sense that you're you're placing those opinions back on the person who's saying them, which is... Yeah. Such a great way of doing it. Let's talk about the business of modeling. So in a lot of businesses, I think people assume like, oh, you're gifted or you have these connections and therefore, but like a lot of these businesses like entertainment, fashion, et cetera, like there's a business side that you have to be good at too in order to get to where you're going. How much of it for you was just raw beauty and talent? How much of it was the business? Oh man, I, beauty and talent gets you in the door, but it doesn't build a career. And I think that's that's the biggest thing is a lot of girls... They're, I mean, I get it. They're young. They usually come from very poor countries um, and they don't really know what they're doing. And so they fall into an industry. They book a couple amazing jobs just based on their looks and talent. They, they blow the money. They end up spiraling. Like I said, they get into a, the drug scene, which is rampant in this industry, and they just spiral. So you see that a lot. And so I think it goes hand in hand. The beauty and the height and all that will get you in the door. But to build a business, you do have to have career or to build a career, you do have to have some business sense. And to ask that of a teenager is hard. And again, this goes back to my upbringing, my family, I have a strong family foundation and they were with me throughout my entire career, coaching me, encouraging me, helping me. Um, and yeah, I definitely don't take that for granted because 
in this industry, there is no one holding your hand. There's no union. You are a self-employed contractor. You get your 1099s at the end of the year and you have to be expected to know what to do with them. We're also working across the world. You know, girls are getting double taxed everywhere because they don't know the paperwork they need to file with the IRS in order to avoid double taxation because they're getting taxed in the UK and also getting taxed in America for the same income. And so it's just like that type of stuff that I'm like, oh, I wish someone made a class about it because I think these girls get so taken advantage of in this industry because it does require a lot of business sense that isn't obvious and definitely is not taught. And so you at the age of 15 kind of get to make a decision. Do I want to model or do I want to do real estate? Clearly for you, it was modeling. Is that because it came with the element of travel? Oh gosh. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's also just like a, you know, it's a seemingly glam. It has a dirty underbelly, but it's a seemingly glamorous industry. And I knew from the start, modeling is not forever. I can do real estate when I'm 95. Modeling, I can only do and listen, I've been, I've been a model for 15 years now. That is light years longer than most people's careers. And I still have probably a couple more good years in me. Um, so I knew from the start, it's not going to last forever. I have to take advantage of it while it does. I can still invest you know, passively or actively in real estate while modeling. It actually gives me the resources to invest. Um, and then at the end of it, I didn't know what I was going to do after modeling, honestly, until a few years ago. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do after, but I'll figure it out when I get there. And then I realized, you know what? That's not good business planning. I need to build an exit strategy and start like slowly making my way over there so that the day that they stop calling, I'm not, you know, out of luck looking for work. So it was uh, definitely a lot of it, again, encouragement from family and uh, a little bit of that grit I talked about. So coming back into your story, so you have modeling slowing down with COVID. You now start drawing upon the the real estate uh, experience that you have, how much did the modeling career help you in real estate? Like, did it help you with exposure? I mean, obviously you're doing a lot of business from social media marketing. Was that something that you learned? Like, how did the modeling career help you in your real estate business? Yeah, I think so. I, I had gained a lot of followers um, just through my modeling stuff. I think it's just like, so, honestly, something people just want to follow and see and whatever. So I, I got like quite a big following on my personal Instagram. So I think whenever I announced I was in real estate and I have my real estate Instagram that I, I don't really cross post ever, but I did a couple times at the beginning of my career, just be like, Hey guys, I've started this new venture, come follow it. And so I think from that, it definitely like helped, you know, um, I'll get a lot of my business from social media. Um, but there is this stigma, especially in Los Angeles, where I was living before I moved that like washed up models become real estate agents because generally they don't have college degrees and they don't know what else to do. And so there was like a lot of that, like, like, uh, definitely falling into that trap and being like, Oh, I'm like that person now. Like what is wrong with me? But it's been it. Listen, I took a flyer and it's been amazing and it continues to go amazing. But I think definitely at the beginning, the modeling helped just from the follower base standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're having some huge quarters. I mean, 6.5 million in quarter one obviously sets you up for a $30 million year. I mean, that is no joke. Um, and that's just your production. So tell us like, what does your business look like and what are you doing to grow it? Okay. So I think the secret sauce to my business has been not pigeonholing myself um, to a specific niche or asset class. 
and I, I really do do it all. And I feel like I do it all well. And again, that goes back to my upbringing and just my exposure to the various types of real estate growing up. I think also the success of my business has been tracking numbers and really being like, again, running a successful business. You don't just trip and fall and accidentally create a successful long lasting business. It's, it's done through, you know, knowing your numbers, running your QuickBooks, knowing exactly which leads generate the most profit for you. So I've tried a lot of different things. I've tried mailers, door knocking, like all of those sort of back to basics type um, marketing and advertising. And it has not generated as much for me as investing in um, social media, investing in a VA, a virtual assistant to help with my social media and my consistency and stuff like that. The ROI on those investments has been astronomical. So I've been able to dig my heels in through just tracking where leads come from, how fast those leads close. Um, referral marketing has been huge for me. So really spending a lot of my time reaching out to agents in other markets and develop in developing referral partnerships with those people. And um, that I, just today, I got a referral, a really strong referral from a um, agent I know and love in Washington, actually. And so just building those relationships has been instrumental to my business. So that's, that's, I think has been the biggest success is, is knowing my numbers, knowing where those leads come from, and then just really doubling down on those strategies. So take me through the referral strategy. You know, I mean, Washington's a long ways away from Dallas. So yeah. why, like, why Washington? Like, how do you connect with these people? What do you do to keep that relationship going? How do you solicit the referrals? <clears throat> yeah, good question. It's all through Instagram. Um, I feel like Instagram is such a great way to get to know someone, their personality. Of course, you want a real a realtor that's closing transactions that's seemingly successful, but also you want a realtor partner that is showing their personality online. I think we can fall into a trap of just posting like, here's the five spring cleaning tips you need. Here's closed under contract like they get kind of monotonous it's really great i think to see personality i want to see videos on there i want to feel like i know this person that i'm referring either a friend or a family member to because that is a direct reflection of me if this person pisses them off or does a terrible job that only looks bad on me so i really want to make sure my referral partners are, are great so how it looks is um, say I want to, and every, every week I'll choose a different city. So say this week it's Portland, Oregon, and they're not random. Like I have to know people that live there, um, have friends or family there or have talked about moving there because I don't just want to say, Hey, let's be referral partners. When I don't think that they'll ever get business from me. I don't think that's fair or genuine. So say it's Portland, Oregon. I will literally search on Instagram, hashtag, Portland, Oregon realtor or Portland OR realtor or Portland realtor or some iteration of that. And I will go through multiple um, Instagram profiles. I'll look for the person that's the most active, the most engaged, looks like he or she is closing good business, um, is showing their personality on their page. I will literally DM them and I will say, hey, listen, I have, you know, a couple friends or family members that live in Portland or are looking to move to Portland. Like I I'm in DFW. Do you have a preferred agent in DFW? I would love to be a referral partner with you. And I always offer them 30% for that referral. And I know like the standards 25, but I will do anywhere between 30 to 35% for people because um, I want them to, sh I want them to know that I care and I'm going to take good care of their client. Right. 
So um, I'll DM them that and I'll say, let's get on a phone call or Zoom. I'd love to get to know you better. So we spend 30 minutes on a Zoom call or a phone call and I have a database of, of agents that I know and trust. And I even market that to my people. I say, guys, if you want to move out of Texas, I can still help you. I have a database of referral partners across the U.S. I've done the vetting for you. I know them and like them and trust them and I'm willing to refer them to you. Um, so that's kind of, and it's been um, like literally incredible for my business has been the referral agent network that I've developed. Give me an idea of the volume that you've been able to do as a result of that. Oh gosh. Um, the past 12 months I've closed. Well, and here's the thing. One of them was an agent in Austin and she sent me a referral for a guy who was looking for $200,000 worth of land. Do the math on that. I made before commission and tax six grand. So probably netted somewhere in the four grand area. Um, so not, not great, but that client or that client that I, and oh, and also I paid her a 30% referral fee. So I literally made peanuts on that transaction, but that client went on to build a home on that land, sell it with me, refer me to a million dollar listing. And then that referral has referred me to a million dollar buyer. So that's the thing is like, there's no transaction that's too small for me because there's a whole new sphere of influence you're unlocking if you serve that client well. So I would say in the past, just from direct referrals, not including who's referred me from those referrals, I would say I've closed um, $3 million in the past 12 months from just direct referrals. If you're including how much business that I've gotten from the referrals of those referrals, it's probably closer to 10 million. So you're talking 60 to $90,000 in commissions off of just direct referrals. I mean, it's probably three to four times yeah. that, you know, if you're talking, I mean, that, that's a great yes. business. I mean, that is a life in and of its own right without any other lead sources, et cetera, all done off of what I'm considering to be relatively close to free process. And I mean, obviously you're paying a referral fee, messaging someone on Instagram doesn't cost anything. Yeah. And you only pay a referral fee on that first transaction. Like if that yeah. person ends up referring me to someone else, like that's my client because, and that's your client because you've served them well enough to where they feel confident enough to refer you in the future to their friends and family. So that's the thing is like, I think people discount how important agent referral marketing is and how important it is to market to your sphere of influence that you have an agent network, because in order to continue to ingratiate yourself to those agents in other, in other, um, in other markets, you want to make sure that you're also giving them leads and giving them business. So important. From the outside looking in, it's like, well, okay. I mean, how many people are people in Portland really going to send to Dallas? So do you find that it's those partners, the ones that are very far away that are sending a lot of business? Or is it like, hey, you're in Dallas, so I got to find someone in San Antonio, Houston, et cetera. Like what's, if you were to like go head into the strategy, what would be the, the list of people you need to put on your list? Well, I'm looking for definitely bigger metros. So it's not like, you know, like this small, like, I don't know, what's it like Alma, Arkansas. I'm not necessarily looking for an agent and no hate to Alma, Arkansas, but I'm looking for agents that do business in a similar size metro to Dallas, right? So we're looking at like, even Scottsdale, it's a little bit smaller, but it's got, you know, you know, people have a higher average income there. They're more likely to 
move and be able to afford something in the DFW area. So I am being a little bit selective on the markets that I choose, of course, like Atlanta, New York City, Los Angeles, San Francisco. So, you know, definitely bigger, bigger metros, I would say uh, definitely above like half a million people. <laughs> awesome. So, I mean, things are really rocking for you. I mean, you're creating great income for yourself. You've got strategies that are very low cost strategies to develop a lot of business. What does the future look like for you? The future is good, um, <clears throat> really good. So, I mean, I'm excited about the market. Of course, there's people, there's naysayers that are afraid of the next 12 months. And I think definitely be conservative because we don't know what the future looks like. But also, we don't know what the future looks like. So it's also just as important to not uh, get too doom and gloom, right? Um, I'm really excited about the next 12 months. I mean, for my own business, we are on track to do um, a lot this year. Like you said, probably close to 30 million. I'm actually working on a land deal that itself would be another 25 million. That would be incredible. Um, but I think as far as an agent goes, really what we need to be doing is doubling down on education. Um, you need to be the expert in your field and in your market area. And to be seen as an expert, you have to be constantly putting out content that is giving education to your sphere of influence. Uh, for me, my motto is I will never ask for business unless I have given someone value. And and that's why I'm really confident about these next 12 months, because I have given my sphere so much value that I'm confident that people are going to continue coming to my husband and I um, and asking for advice or asking for our help um, in their, you know, achieving their real estate goals this year. There are creative ways to get around the interest rate market right now. There are um, rent to own programs that people can steer their clients towards where they can get into a home they love and just buy it back once interest rates drop. If that's what they're concerned about, there's other, you know, interest rate buy down programs, of course. And in this market, you're able to ask a seller for those concessions. There are so many creative ways to navigate this market in the unknown. And I think like for my husband and I, we're not making up excuses. We are just like saying, here's our reality. Here's what we're going to do to navigate the unknown and we're going to kill it. And I think, you know, leading with confidence and education has been such a success builder for us. Yeah. This might be a little personal, but if you're doing 30 million and you're not spending a lot in marketing, your, your net commissions are going to be somewhere between half a million and a million dollars this year. It's a lot yeah. of money. So yeah. as a person who grew up around real estate investments, just to give the audience a glimpse of how are you going to spend your money, right? So that you're not this new person in real estate that's blowing all their dough. How, how if you don't mind me asking, how are you going to spend the half million to a million dollars in net income you'll make this year? <laughs> um, there is no question off the table. And I will just give you an example. Um, on April 3rd, we're recording this April 18th. So about two weeks ago, I closed on a uh, $3 million transaction, which uh, generated about 85,000 in commission and I had already capped. So my broker only took like a grand, I think of that. So after tax and all that fun stuff, let's say it goes down to 50 K how much I really netted, right? I invested all 50 K of that the next day. So I made 84 K in commission, figured for taxes and invested the rest. And that is like 
what my motto right now, because my husband and I have a very audacious goal to be retired at 40. I'm 29. He's 33. And the only way to do that is to build up our real estate portfolio um, enough so that our passive income can offset our active income. So we invested in something that is, I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy. It's supposed to like four to eight X our money in five years. So if you do the math on that, that 50,000 could get me close to half a million dollars in five years. And if I just keep rinsing and repeating all year long, investing, I need money to live, of course, but honestly, our monthly expenses are low. You know, our monthly expenses are probably around eight grand all said. So as long as we have enough for our monthly expenses, we have our six month reserve always in our bank account. Um, everything after that is free game and we invest a lot of money. So I want to dive in this. I want to throw a disclaimer out there. If you're out there listening, obviously we're not giving you advice personally, like seek advice from the relative professionals, attorneys, accountants, you know, financially licensed professionals. We're just telling a story of Rachel's journey here. So you get the $50,000, you have somewhere to put it. So it's, it's not like you're going out and buying a new property. Give us an idea. What does this investment look like? Okay. So I do a lot of uh, multifamily syndication and I know you're familiar with it because I did, I did listen to some episodes and you've had some cool syndicators on. Um, but I do a lot of multifamily syndication on the passive and the active side. Wow. Um, both. This and yes, both. So I was a GP, meaning I was on the sponsorship team, mm -hmm. found the deal, raised the capital on four, like over 600 units last year. So it was four properties, wow. a little over 600 units. Yeah. And it was like a hundred million in value last year. And that was on the, active side. And then I've also invested passively in countless deals. Um, we're in some commercial real estate funds. So we're buying up some uh, triple net leases. So that's like your auto zones, dollar generals, LA fitnesses, like those retail spaces. We're buying up those uh, into a fund and that fund's going to go public. And that's kind of our um, value add on that deal. That's what's going to really escalate our money is that, that IPO element. So that's a really cool thing we're invested in. But this deal I put 50K in is actually really interesting and fascinating. It's, um, I mean, I, I feel like I can talk about it because I'm not a sponsor. I'm just a passive investor in the deal, but, um, it's like a fiber, basically we're laying fiber cable and then selling hmm. it to AT&T. <laughs> and this like is the one that has the potential for four to eight times the returns, I'm guessing. Exactly. Cause exactly. you're taking on more risk. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's a proof of concept. The sponsorship team did it with their own money last year and it did really well. Um, so that's kind of, it's a really interesting niche as like, it's something I've never done because it's not really real estate, right? It's, it's different. It's like you're, it's a business you're investing in. Um, but I'm really excited about it. And obviously I'm confident in it if I put in, you know, that kind of money, but and then this year, we're going to diversify even more. Um, we're looking at investing in vineyards and other types of commercial real estate because multifamily is difficult right now with the interest rates rising, right? There's a lot of uncertainty in that market. Um, so we're kind of like diversifying and looking at other sorts of asset classes that are less impacted by the debt market right now. Wow. Um, yeah. And so when you're thinking about this, how are you structuring? How diversified do you want to be? What the return uh, structure looks like? Um, I, I mean, I think diversity is key. I'm not invested in stocks at all. I used to be and totally liquidated my entire portfolio that was on the, the stock market because I think being diversified in the stock market's an oxymoron, frankly. I don't like market dependent assets um, because it's too volatile for me. I like real estate. 
um, a lot because at the end of the day, even if the business fails, you still have the real estate to sell, right? Um, which is a really attractive element to me. And I'm very conservative. And I don't mean that by like, I only do like the old kind of dusty, crusty ways of investing. By conservative, I just mean I'm really um, looking at the underwriting, like making sure that the underwriting's very, very reasonable and conservative. I want to look at that exit cap, uh, cap rates are what we use in commercial real estate. It's a kind of a metric we use to determine value. And on the sale, a lot of people can be a little bit too aggressive with their cap rates and have them too low. I want to see a very conservative high cap rate written into the underwriting on the sale. I want to see really low estimated rent growth because these are factors that are going to impact the overall return. And especially walking into a landscape that's kind of unknown in the economy, you want to make sure the investments you're investing in are, are, are definitely written underwritten conservatively. So as far as diversification goes, I'm looking at a variety of different asset classes and markets. I would say 95% is still real estate, but I have, you know, multifamily, ER clinics, office space, um, the triple net leases like I'm talking about. And then I have like my... Of course, uh, we find our own deals and syndicate them, but also like I have my core group of syndicators I know and trust that have been in the business for like a decade that have had an incredible track record of success and just focus on quality over quantity as far as like deal flow goes. Incredible. You mentioned earlier that, you know, you kind of lamented that you were the model turned real estate agent. But I suspect that that stereotype isn't applying to someone that is doing the kind of business that you're doing, that's investing, that's savvy, that has all of these amazing things that you're up to. Give me a, a glimpse, like you're married. And so like, is your husband like right there with you in this? Like, or is he just like, you know, go Rachel, go. <laughs> Both. He is definitely my biggest cheerleader. I will say he was not raised in a family like mine and his family's amazing absolutely love them um but he's definitely learned a lot about like the investing side from me and my family and he has like took it gung-ho and like is running the race right there with me and so it's i'm not dragging him along at all we are right there in tandem together um tackling this together we get excited about different things he's a little bit more skeptical than i am i'm more like sounds great let's do it and he's more like okay slow your roll let's look at the, look numbers, at the numbers a little closer yeah detail. yeah yeah and i'm like no i i trust him I tr he's like come on rachel let's let's look at it so he's yeah. good about that but uh he's definitely he's the best teammate i could ask for it could go mm. one of two ways when you decide to build a business with your spouse and for us it's just been like to the moon how fun yeah. Awesome. Rachel, thank you so much for sharing about your life and your business. I know you got really personal with us about the homeschool aspect, about the financial. So we really, really thank you for that. Guys, if you're out there listening, write down something that you learned from today, whether it be the strategy on how you can get like a quarter million dollars of commission from a free strategy, how to invest your money afterwards. And there's so many things that we covered today. Write down something that, that stuck out to you. Share it with somebody you know so they can hold you accountable because freedom's acquired one action at a time. And if you... Do, uh, take steps day by day before you know it you too will be living a life of freedom thanks for tuning in we'll catch you guys on the next episode